It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Research uh, related to governance, uh, Dr. Paul Light, who's the uh, Paulette Goddard Professor of Public Service at NYU Wagner. Uh, he's also the founding principal investigator at the Global Center for Public Service. He's uh, previously served as a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution uh, and director of public policy at the Pew Charitable Trusts. And he's the author of uh, over 25 books, including a best selling American government textbook that's widely used, uh, Government by the People. Uh, and then our second guest is uh, Dr. Donald F. Kettle, uh, who's the professor and former dean of the uh, School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland. And Dr. Kettle is a non-resident senior fellow at the Partnership for Public Service, the uh, the Volcker Alliance, and the Brookings Institution. So I uh, thank you so much, gentlemen, for, for being with me this morning. It is great to be with you, Ben. And uh, glad to be with you. So we are, uh, you know, uh, it actually turns out that the, the topic today is a little bit more, more timely than maybe I anticipated. Um, yesterday, the, uh, the Senate pushing through uh, 65 uh, presidential appointments, and uh, you know, both of you have written extensively on uh, presidential appointments, the, the history of the process, uh, in the, some of the efficiencies and inefficiencies within the process. Uh, you know, Dr. Light, I, I know that you've uh, Dr. Kettle reference you've you've literally written the book on presidential appointments, and so I wondered if you could give us um, uh, just a little bit of the background of, of how the current presidential appointment process came to be, and, and some of the the history there that led us to where we are. Well, the appointments process is embedded in the Constitution. Um, the president is responsible for nominating the senior officers of government. That's in the Constitution and the Senate is to provide its advice and consent. Over the years, we've created other classes of appointees uh, below the Senate-confirmed uh, category, and we now have senior executive uh, exempt members of the senior executive service who are political, uh, selected by the White House, um, for the most part selected by the White House Office of Presidential Personnel, and we have Schedule C personal and confidential assistants uh, who are at lower levels, um, might have uh, 1,500 to 2,000 of those, uh, six to 700 uh, non-career members of the Senior Executive Service. And, you know, over time we've um, uh, increased the numbers ever so slightly. We don't have good accounting uh, of some of them, but you know the federal mission has grown, and so has the number of uh, appointees, and um, the number who are subject to Senate confirmation has fallen uh, slightly. Uh, but um, you know it's a big system, uh, appropriate to a big mission. And I know uh, one of your your more recent pieces of, uh, of research was uh, was Back to the Future uh, on presidential appointments. Um, it, 
can you kind of get into the, the the argument you make there on uh, on the presidential appointment process a little bit? Well, you know, I think the process is um, uh, a sluggish and abusive process. Um, and it's no wonder that some people will opt out of it uh, just mm-hmm. because the process is burdensome. Uh, some will opt out of it because they don't want to serve with uh, uh, the president or they don't agree with the president's priorities. There is scuttlebutt and rumor that uh, some uh, nominees or uh, some of the people that the Trump administration has called for, um, you know, phoned and asked to serve. Um, are reluctant to do so because uh, they're concerned about the president's position on issues or the reputation of the administration. I'm not sure how much of that is true. People don't tell. Uh, they don't, uh, you know, give interviews about why they didn't serve. Um, you, you rarely find out about it. Uh, and we don't know how far the president is picking down the bench uh, for his team. Yeah, that's, that's really rarely discussed, uh, although it does happen. We just don't get names attached for the most part. And uh, Dr. Kettle, is there anything you wanted to, to add to that? It's, there's just no doubt that there are people who have been offered positions in this administration and have decided not to take it. I had a long conversation with someone yesterday who was in exactly that situation and essentially had an opportunity to serve and decided that it just was not in the cards because there was too much difference between the, the candidate's point of view and where he suspected the administration was going. It, it happens. It happens a lot. And as Paul suggested, we never really know the stories, but it's unquestionably happening. And what we've got this time around, I think, is a, is a set of problems that are uh, based in a lot of the problems that Paul's written about over time, which is that we just have so many, probably too many political pointies. But this time, We've got even more difficulty in trying to sort these things out. They, at the very beginning, the administration went through probably three or four different starts for the transition process, which made it really hard to get things going. It turns out there's so many appoint, appointees to fill that they struggle to try to generate names. It's hard to find good ones that match the, the president's agenda and who will actually take the job of offered. Confirmation can be difficult, and uh, George Nestor Chuck, who was nominated as director of the Office of Personnel Management, found that out as his nominate as he withdrew his own nomination because of the struggles on that piece. Uh, the jobs are difficult, and um, trying to find a way to work all these things out it just turns out to be a very difficult process. And in this administration, the numbers so far, according to the numbers that the Partnership for Public Service put together, is this administration is lagging behind any administration in recent memory since the George H.W. Bush administration. And uh, not only lagging behind by a little bit, but lagging behind by a lot. And it is the the George H.W. Bush, by this point, had 162 appointees confirmed, and Donald Trump has 51. So he's less than a third of George H.W. Bush, which itself was to this point, the, the lowest number in recent history. So just a sign of just how big of a problem that we've got right now. Now, and, and then to what extent, I guess yesterday with the, the Senate pushing through the, the 65, um, that, I guess that bring, does that bring that number up uh, a little bit? To uh, uh, because I, it, it helps a little. I don't think this has been dominated uh, since yesterday. And the Senate rushed through these nominations to try to get as much work as they could before they took off on, on recess. But gotcha. 
the, the problem is that even the, the the nominations that have been sent up and have not yet been confirmed, that they're still lagging behind substantially, and it's taking a lot longer to confirm appointees, even though the Republicans have control of the Senate. So there's just no way to look at this problem in any way other than to suggest that this administration is having a big problem in getting nominees on board, getting people in place, and there's a large number of acting officials in a lot of agencies who are on a clock. The, the federal law restricts individuals from serving in an acting position for more than a certain amount of time, and the clock is ticking on many of them. So there's a, a second stage crisis that's in the process of building as well. And, and Dr. Light, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, again, some of the history there. The, the Washington Post, uh, Dr. Kettle, as you mentioned, uh, runs, runs a tracker of the, uh, the presidential appointment process. And as of yesterday, I think it's maybe changed a little bit since then. Uh, as of yesterday, though, um, there were 355 positions that did not have a nominee at all. Um, and those are the numbers are from the Partnership for Public Service. Um, obviously, it, you, you both agree that it's, it's something that, that matters immensely for government to be able to uh, to operate well. And Dr. Light, you mentioned that it's, it's sort of a bullying process. Is it really, uh, I mean, is, is it sort of as simple as that, uh, as solving it? Is it that, that people just, you know, it's too unwieldy, too many positions, and people don't want to do it because of what they have to go through? Or what are some of the the ways that you see that the, the system could be improved, made better, so that it's, it's not as sluggish as, as we're seeing it this go-round? Well, let's say that we agreed that every position should be filled, that every position is justified. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't believe that. I have my own position on it. Um, I think we've got too many layers of leaders at the top of government. But if you want to fill them, you have to make it easier to say yes. This is a brutal process. It's expensive uh, in terms of time and money. Uh, I don't know a single senior level uh, presidential appointee uh, who enters the process without an accountant in tow. It used to be that the forms are relatively easy uh, to fill out, relatively short. You've got a form from the White House office of presidential personnel and the White House counsel, uh, the president's form. Uh, I mean, we don't see, we knew what Obama was asking. He was asking uh, a number of reasonable questions and wanted to know whether his uh, nominees owned a gun, whether they ever shot a gun, um, you know, what their URLs and, you know, what they had said on Twitter and so forth, all of these things. So you got to collect that information. And even before you're announced, you have to go through that. You have to start filling out the forms. Um, you know, we have colleagues, Don and I have colleagues, who have studied the forms, and there's a tremendous amount of duplication and overlap across all the questions we ask. But uh, the questions are just dissimilar enough. The bend point and reporting your income and assets, for example, might vary by a couple of hundred dollars on one form to another. It's just very, very difficult. It's a concrete pipe. So we don't know who Donald Trump has called. We don't know where uh, the questionnaires that the White House will use to make the selection, um, you know, are in terms of being filled out and so forth. So, um, you know, it's just a brutal process and uh, could be streamlined. Uh, But uh, given the number of people that you have going through the process, the number of positions to fill, presidents take a real risk um, in not over-vetting. 
because it, it, it only takes one uh, disaster to derail the process. And, you know, Obama had a couple, Clinton had a couple, Bush had a couple, people who were uh, vetted by the FBI who turned out to have very serious conflicts and violations of federal law and so forth. So this is a brutal process. So one of my colleagues, uh, uh, Cal McKenzie up at Colby College, once called it nasty, brutish, and not at all short. And it, it is tough. So that is the place to go uh, to begin. And then the question is, do we have too many? And that, that we might talk about in a little bit. Okay. Well, uh, w- with that note, we're going to, uh, to take a quick break. Uh, you're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500 AM, and we'll continue our discussion uh, after this break and a word from our sponsor. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. We're talking to Dr. Paul Light and uh, Dr. Donald Kettle about the presidential appointment process. Both men have uh, written extensively uh, in academia about the presidential appointment process and its history and and some of the ways that uh, that they believe it could be improved. Um, and before we went to break, and uh, Dr. Light was was talking a little bit about uh, some of the issues that he sees, um, you know, with the the political appointee process. And uh, so I'll uh, turn it over to Dr. Kettle here for a minute. Um, if you could. You know, I guess give uh, give some context to, to people who who may not understand what uh, you know. What are some of the, the the issues that that political appointees are running into, and why are and, you know you had mentioned that we're at sort of a uh, historically slow pace under the Trump administration. Um, you know, what are some of the causes of that, uh, and are there remedies that could be put in place to make the system run a little bit better? Sure. One the the first and most important question is how are we running the show? without political appointees in place in so many agencies. And the, the pace has been slow. In many cases, key appointees have not been put in place. We have cabinet secretaries, of course, across the board, except now for Homeland Security, because uh, Kelly has just been named the White House Chief of Staff. They're going to go back and get at that all over again and do a new, new search and selection on that. But what we've got is a process right now where we've got a large number of careers who are very good, very competent in charge of running the government, but they need policy direction for many of the things that they would want to do. And it's everything from the Department of Energy deciding how to test whether or not our nuclear weapons continue to work to all the issues the State Department has to try to deal with to basic questions inside the Department of Homeland Security about how to find a way to fill the vacancies for border guards and what to do to make sure that we're prepared in case there's a major hurricane. So there are tremendously competent people inside the federal government who are full-time careers who have great insight and manage these programs every day. But sooner or later, you get to the point where decisions have to be made, and these folks don't have 
the authority to be able to make those decisions. They, they have ideas about what the decisions ought to be. They have the capacity to keep things going in the meantime. They even enacting positions can make decisions in the short term to try to keep things going. But the fundamental problem that we've got right now is that the, the backlog of basic policy decisions that the government needs to make and that are required to keep the government going are just simply not getting made because we don't have politicals who are in place with the authority to be able to do that. What's really going to happen as things get even more tough in the next couple months is that in the very short term, we've got the question of about what the, what the budget's going to look like. And agency by agency by agency, there are going to be some pretty tough questions as Congress comes back and debates an extension of spending authority. But then the all-important budget that's being put together for fiscal year 19, which would be really the administration's first big budget and which may contain some very big cuts, those are going to require huge, important, sweeping fundamental decisions. And only people who are essentially working for the president will have the, and confirmed by the Senate, will have the authority to make those decisions. So not only is the backlog of decisions building up, but the really crucial decisions looking forward are just coming into focus. And the consequences of not having staffed up the administration at that point will be even more clear. And, and Dr. Light, on that point, I, I guess uh, I know you've written uh, quite a bit about uh, sort of the the, the relationship between uh, political appointees and uh, career executives. And is, is it safe to say that the, the as a result of not having those political appointees in place, um, and I believe this was alluded to, uh, that, that as a result, you have these career federal executives who are necessarily you're stepping into those kind of vacuums of leadership until something is in place. Uh, what, is, what does that actually look like on the ground? And, and uh, you know, I know there had been some discussion of whether there are too many political appointees, and I assume that, uh, you know, that factors into the equation a little bit. Well, look, the, uh, the federal hierarchy uh, consists of a number of um, Senate-confirmed positions, uh, executive level one, two, three, four, and five. Um, and then you have a number of career officers who are deputies, chiefs of staff, so forth and so on. Uh, and not, not often chiefs of staff. Those are uh, political people, for sure. But you have a, a number of uh, career people, senior executives and so forth, also in these compartments of uh, senior leadership. Now, what's happening now um, is not that career people are filling uh, the gaps. What's happening now is that um, we are just missing uh, people who act as uh, the intermediaries. Uh, there's a lot of confusion out in the agencies. And I, I think and believe, uh, and there's some evidence uh, here, that the Trump administration uh, would rather have uh, gaps and vacancies at the top of agencies than um, designate uh, and uh, link the top of the agencies uh, to uh, the operation of the agencies. Better not to have anyone than somebody who's going to actually uh, – uh, take action. Uh, that has been a long-standing strategy among people who wish to slow down the federal bureaucracy. Um, and you can see it here. So the federal government uh, has right now uh, a large number of appointees um, or slots empty. Uh, they have uh, the, the Trump administration has its cabinet, cabinet secretaries, most deputy secretaries, um, and so forth. But 
you know, so you've got the top of government. Uh, the federal government is not so much headless, but neckless. There are all these nerves that run from the C-suite in the federal government down into the uh, bureaucracy from an operational standpoint. And those people just aren't there, and I don't think the Trump administration is concerned about it. Uh, a government that does not act uh, is arguably better for the Trump administration's agenda than a government that does. And you'll see that uh, become clearer in September when agencies start sending in their reorganization plans. You're going to see a lot of uh, cut down. So um, there is a, a very large uh, problem here with uh, lack of continuity between uh, the upper levels of government and the Trump administration officers. But, you know, I don't think the Trump administration minds. Uh, Trump, oh, one last point, Trump argued on Fox and Friends some months ago that uh, when he was confronted by Fox and Friends, believe it or not, uh, asking, you know, why there were so many vacancies, Trump said, you know, many of the positions are not necessary. You know, we've got people on people on people, he told Fox and Friends. Well, um, uh, some might argue that even a broken clock is uh, uh, correct at least twice a day in terms of presidential appointees, and there are too many people on people in the federal government. But if you don't get rid of those positions, you basically have uh, vacant slots or you've got a lack of motion, and that's what the Trump administration has. Is there an argument? I mean, it, it seems to me as you know, not having the the, uh, the background in the <clears throat> excuse me in the academic research, it seems to me that. Um, th that would be a, an approach that could potentially backfire um, when you have the, the Americans largely uh, expressing some level of discontent with the way the government works. Um, is 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 that an accurate assumption that that is something that that could ultimately backfire when people aren't in place to get done what needs to be done, or is it simply uh, or is it an effective mechanism of uh, not moving the ball on the issues that you, you don't want to move the ball on? Well, Don can uh, address that. I mean, we, we see it in government breakdowns. You can say, look, you know, uh, that deep water horizon, that Hurricane Katrina, whatever. When Hurricane Katrina hit, um, there were a number of vacancies or actings running the uh, FEMA uh, regional offices. Uh, there were problems all over that hierarchy uh, due to the Homeland Security merger which pulled FEMA into a top-heavy uh, bureaucracy. I mean, so Americans will say, oh, my goodness, the federal government failed uh, during Hurricane Katrina, but they won't blame the appointee process for that. Um, when Bush, when uh, terrorists struck uh, the um, uh, World Trade Center, um, there were vacancies all over the place in Homeland Security positions. So Trump has caught up to some extent, kind of, you know, taken. He hasn't caught up, but he's, he's made some progress in the last day filling jobs. But uh, when 9-11 uh, occurred, the attacks occurred, there were a large number of vacancies. Could it have been prevented? Uh, doubtful. Um, but... Still, the, the reaction times, you know, but Americans don't look to that as the problem. That's not, uh, that's not how we think. Dr. Kettle, do you want to add anything on that? Sure. And the 
problem right now for the for the Trump people is this. So far, the administration has been very clear, very pointed, and very effective at trying to stop things, trying to roll back governmental power, to try to change the way that things have been done in the past by by putting in some ways a lot of the, the bits of the engine in reverse. The problem is that there are some things that we want government to do, and we want government to do well, and that we'd be very unhappy if it didn't do. And that would include things like what Paul was just talking about. What, what happens if, heaven forbid, there is a major terrorist attack, or if there is a hurricane? Will the government be prepared not to, not to go backwards, not to stop things, but to try to respond affirmatively to the things we want to have government do? What happens if there is an outbreak of a, of a pestilence of some kind, a virus, say, a, a Zika kind of thing, where we need the National Institutes of Health and the Centers for Disease Control to operate effectively? And are we prepared to have government actually do things in a positive kind of way? What, what happens when we, and for, especially to the administration, if we have to shift from, let's find ways of stopping what's happening, and roll back what the Obama administration did to let's find ways of making work the things that the public expects us to do. And that's where the friction of the political pointy process is likely to be most sharp. It's, it is clear and, as Paul pointed out, very deliberate on the part of the administration to take a, a slow walk on a lot of these appointments to try to, in, in many ways, slow the bureaucracy down. But there are times when we want the bureaucracy to work and to work fast and bad things will happen if it can't. And that's the point, another big friction point, that the administration surely will face. And I think one of the things that concerns me a bit on this score is that there's some evidence, most of it's anecdotal, but some evidence that uh, there's some people who are involved in some places who don't fully understand the ways in which government works and the mechanisms by which it does what it does. And the, I think there's an assumption that it, it's just this huge machine that will just keep on rolling nonstop and continue doing whatever it does, regardless of whatever it is that anybody does, unless somebody tries to stop it. And that it just doesn't describe the way in which most of the mechanisms operate. And as Paul pointed out, you can end up with serious troubles with something like a, a situation like Katrina, where you need strong leadership from the top. And if you can't get it, then truly bad things happen. And it's worth pointing out that in both the Obama and the George W. Bush administrations, the point where in public opinion polls, the administrations had the biggest problems, the biggest problems, in fact, from which they, in the case of Obama, barely recovered and for Bush never recovered, was in the aftermath of big problems where the public expected things to happen and where it didn't. For, for Bush, it was Katrina. For Obama, it was the launch of the Obamacare website. And in both cases, it had to do with fundamental problems of human capital with the right people in the right places who were needed, who weren't there, and things didn't happen, and really bad political things happened. And the administration needs to be hyper alert to the difficulty of, that it's building itself into by not getting enough political appointees in place to be able to provide the leadership where it needs it. We, we may not need all the appointees that we have on the books, but there's some that we need desperately. And when they are not in place, not only managerially can bad things happen, but politically things can happen negatively, too. It's an interesting point, the, the politi political ramifications of it. Um, we're we're going to have to take a quick break right there, and uh, we're going to continue our discussion with uh, Dr. Paul Light and Dr. Donald Kettle uh, after a quick word from our sponsor. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. 
Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. If you're a federal manager, you deal with a lot of information. Here's a tip on breaking through the noise. Join the Federal Managers Association to have a voice on Capitol Hill. And to get filtered news and information specific to managing your workforce, join the 50,000 other federal managers who already subscribe and read the free weekly e-report, fedmanager.com. I'm Todd Wells, Executive Director of the Federal Managers Association, and I approve this message. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, uh, 1500 AM. Uh, again, we are joined today by uh, Dr. Paul Light and Dr. Donald Kettle. And uh, we've been discussing the, the presidential appointment process, the, the history, and uh, some of the uh, issues that, that can uh, perhaps unintentionally uh, you know, trip up an administration with the, uh, with the appointment process. And um, Dr. Kettle, uh, you, you, were, you were discussing a little bit. Dr. Light, I was, I was hoping to get your perspective on um, sort of the, the political ramifications of that. There sort of seems to be an irony um, that you you know might slow uh, the the appointment process for political reasons, but as you mentioned, some of these uh, very costly disasters, both politically and financially, that have happened in the past, have been a result of that. So it seems that there is a, there's sort of a, a danger there of inadvertently shooting yourself in the foot politically by by slow walking some of these. Uh, you know, to what what extent is that uh, a factor? I don't know. I've I've seen uh, what I call decapitation of agencies um, in every administration. Depends on you know where you are politically. I don't think the public, even the media, uh, good aggressive investigators, uh, don't fully understand uh, the connective tissues of government. Um, it's a complicated business, and uh, academics like me. Um, you know, are kind of uh, speaking into uh, the wind sometimes, trying to explain how weaknesses in the chain of command or weaknesses in the uh, public service skill gaps and so forth might affect government performance. Americans are generally convinced, generally being a soft term, uh, that the federal government wastes a lot of their money, uh, is uh, inefficient, uh, too expensive. Uh, they like uh, their um, federal uh, employees that they meet day to day. There's overwhelming support for many of the departments and agencies that are on the cutting block right now. But uh, to a certain extent, um, the American public will respond more to disquiet about government and the sense and the rhetoric about waste and inefficiency and bloat. Uh, and we rarely see uh, a uh, president, Democrat or Republican, who isn't in favor of, you know, more efficient, uh, smaller government, uh, although they define uh, those terms quite differently by party. So, I mean, I just don't see the American public and, and, you know, even Congress is confused sometimes about these issues. There is, there are pockets of expertise on the committees, uh, 
But um, Congress as a whole doesn't understand the relationship between uh, administrative systems and uh, the delivery of uh, effective programs. Uh, We didn't see much in the Obamacare legislation dealing with that. A lot of deadlines that were almost unneedable, but very little concern for uh, providing the technical assistance, the funding for effective delivery that you would need over the long haul. And to what extent is that, um, I guess it's sort of the, the, the logical uh, brain in me, to what extent is that, is it a, you know, is it a messenger problem, a, a PR problem, uh, an, an education problem that you have? You know, I've had the benefit of working uh, a little bit with, uh, for example, the Presidential Rank Awards, and these are uh, you know, career federal employees who have individually and cumulatively, in many cases, saved tens of millions of taxpayer dollars. So it's you know, truly examples of, of government sort of done well by by. Um, good government employees, um, but it seems like that message gets lost and, and doesn't really make it beyond sort of the the headlines of, of government is bad, and it's sort of that, that black and white thing. Is it a messenger problem? Is it just educating people? What is what is the solution to that? Maybe that's the million-dollar question I'm asking. <laughs> that's a, probably a couple hundred trillion-dollar question <laughs> in a way because it gets right to the core of everything, but the, the, the problem is this, that uh, it's very much like what all the research shows about our opinions about Congress and individual members of Congress. People really don't like Congress. They think Congress is broken, and they think a lot of members are corrupt, except, of course, for their own member of Congress, who, if they know them, they tend to like them and think their member is doing a pretty good job. And it's obviously impossible for each individual member of Congress to be doing a good job, but then people not liking the other members of Congress that don't represent them. It has to do with the connection of what they see and the way in which things actually work. And the same thing happens when it comes to the federal government. People people love the federal government programs that benefit them, the ones that are located in their areas, the, the national parks, the VA hospitals, the people who protect water policy, the people who are in charge of measuring and monitoring and ensuring food safety and people who do air traffic control. They love all the stuff that benefits them. It's just the programs that benefit everybody else that they don't see the benefits of themselves that they're convinced are wasteful. And given the fact that so much of the federal government operates, as Paul's pointed out in previous work, through contractors and other kinds of third parties, the problem is that you often don't see the people who are actually doing the government's work. And so it makes it that much easier for people to push back and not see those kind of connections. And so the core problem is it just, there's a lot of money, everybody's taxes are too high. If you look back to the history of time, uh, thousands of years, everybody's always thought their taxes are too high. And so everybody wants their taxes to be reduced. If it looks like somebody else's taxes are not really high enough to benefit their own programs, and my own taxes are being spent for programs I don't care about, it's it's an easy target that's been complicated by the fact that it's hard to see the federal government actually at work benefiting people in the ways in which they know and care. But, but boy, does it make a difference if it happens in our neighborhood or if it ends up with a big program that ends up splashed all over the evening news. Go back to Katrina and saw Anderson Cooper walking down the streets of New Orleans, essentially saying, where is the federal government? And you saw President Bush coming in and putting his arm around Michael Brown, who was head of FEMA at that point, saying, Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job, when the one thing, sadly, that was clear to everybody was one thing that was not happening was that FEMA was doing a heck of a job. But uh, Brown was replaced. Fat Allen came in as the 
essentially the the guru of the of the recovery to Hurricane Katrina, and the force of leadership turned around the process by which the federal government responded. And so the lessons are clear. Government matters. It matters most when it, we can see the results and we can make the connections, and that individual leaders with the right kind of capacity can make a difference. And those are the key and important lessons, but they're just so hard to learn. It's so easy to complain about so much money going to things that we don't like and don't see and often don't appreciate. You know, I, uh, Don's right on point here. Um, I wish I had a nickel for every time somebody says that we need more good stories about the federal government to um, counterweigh the negatives. Gee, if, if only, uh, uh, you know, CNN and MSNBC and Fox would have segments on how wonderful government does, all the things that it produces, and it does. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, if it bleeds, it leads. And Americans pay a lot of attention to the negatives, and a lot of the negatives uh, involves disinvestment in federal capacity. We don't have the right technology, the good technology. We can't communicate well. Congress systematically underfunds. Presidents uh, underfund. Uh, we're under constant pressure. Um, to keep the number of federal employees to the bare minimum. There are all sorts of problems we can talk about, but the federal government uh, still performs well. Um, I like to say that it makes uh, federal employees make miracles every day, and you see them celebrated for doing so, but they often have no choice but to make miracles because they don't have the stuff uh, a perfectly uh, precise academic term. They often don't have the stuff to make miracles naturally. They, they're they're swimming against the uh, the or they're they're working against the odds. They don't have the the stuff they need. And I don't I don't care how much evidence you look at it, at whether Feds are overpaid or underpaid or whatever. Uh, we do know that many of these problems that Don and I talk about are related to disinvestment in the core capacities of government and uh, disinvestment in Congress, uh, congressional um, ability to make good decisions in designing policy. Lots of things happen here. So, you know, I think uh, we've got lots of wonderful stories about how federal employees uh, succeed, but that does not counterweight um, the, the breakdowns. And those are what get the uh, attention. And, and Dr. Kettle, the you, problem, you, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that the problem, just to pick up on what Paul was just saying, uh, I looked at the Washington Post and New York Times website a little while ago, and there's no headline that says mail delivered yet again today or right. Social Security checks arrive on time. But we're at the point, believe it or not, when it comes to distributing Social Security payments, that the error rate is, is too small to measure when it comes to the regular Social Security payments that go out every month. That's pretty stunning. Or if you put on a pair of earphones around Chicago O'Hare Airport, listen to air traffic controllers doing what they do. It is phenomenal. I, I just don't know how that happens. But people, in a sense, rightly expect that they're paying tax dollars for this, and of course they expect that to work. And it's we, we tend to focus on the negative because it's more interesting, it makes for better stories, but it's very easy to lose proportion of what's happening. But more importantly, it's very hard to try to figure out how to fix it. And that's where it is that I think we really need to focus our attention. And that's, 
I think that the deep trap that's awaiting the Trump administration, because at some point, and you can you can bet every dollar that's in your wallet on this, there is something will happen that will require the government to do something and to do it well. And if the administration is not equipped because it doesn't have the right people in place to do it, it will pay bitterly and pay politically for that. I mean, is it safe to say that the crux of, of all of this is ultimately the the politicization that we've seen, the the, the polar nature, increasingly polar nature uh, of politics? Because it seems it, it continues to go back to the you know particular brand of media coverage uh, to um, you know holdups in Congress, which are so often you know, partisan divides. Um, is that ultimately the the driver, or are there more systemic issues that are are kind of preventing? We were talking about the appointment process, or whatever the case may be. Um, are there more systemic issues there that can be uh, addressed, kind of based on the the research that you guys have done? Well, I mean, I you know, in a sense, I, go ahead, Don. Go ahead, Paul. Well, I mean, I just focus. Uh, uh, on the, in the presidential appointments process on reducing uh, the excessive layering uh, of the federal hierarchy, the upper levels of the hierarchy, uh, the distance between the top and government of, and bottom of government has increased with each administration. Every president comes in saying they're going to do something to make government more efficient, uh, you know, hold government accountable, uh, Discipline contractors, reduce fraud, waste, and abuse, those kinds of things. Uh, President Trump has done the same. Mulvaney, his budget director, Mike Mulvaney, has said the same. But uh, when you look at the number of layers uh, in total, the number of layers between the top and bottom of government, a very large percentage are in headquarters. Now, in terms of total numbers of people, layers, uh, uh, the number of leaders, it's a, you know, it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the total federal workforce. But in terms of the number of layers between top and bottom, um, political appointees uh, and their career executive uh, assistants and deputies, um, associate deputies and so forth, um, they occupy a substantial percentage of the layers between the top and bottom. Don talked a little bit about the veterans uh, scandal in Phoenix. Uh, throughout uh, the early days of that scandal, uh, General Shinseki, uh, the Secretary of uh, Veterans Affairs, kept saying, I, I didn't know about this. And people were saying, oh, my goodness, how could you not know about it? Well, the answer is that he was 20 layers from Phoenix. Um, and I suspect and I believe that he did not know that the information just doesn't rise to the top, and that's a product of layering. And so I end up saying, look, let's be deliberate and let's reduce uh, the number of touches between the top and the bottom of the hierarchy and get better uh, measures uh, that uh, can fill dashboards at the top and so forth, and let's get some communication going. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we don't even have a Pony Express between the top and uh, bottom of government, and it's often hard to know uh, where accountability resides and what the problem is. Dr. Kettle, I think you had something to add. Sure, and the problem is not only all of what Paul just said, which is the connection between top and bottom, and I think Paul is absolutely right that Secretary Shinseki did not know about what was going on in Phoenix, but the the number of layers also makes it hard 
not only to make connections from, from top to bottom, bottom to top, but across the layers as well. One of the, the real problems is that these individual stovepipes are not connected very well because there are so many layers, it makes it that much harder to try to weave those pieces together. And you can see in agency after agency, the, the more layers there are, the harder it is to get information from the bottom to the top, but the harder it is to connect all the pieces with each other. So that's, that's deep and that's structural and that's rooted fundamentally in the problems that we've got. And then it's compounded by the changes in the way in which the federal government's doing its business. Uh, I remember, and we all remember, the, the stories about the, the lady who showed up at the campaign rally with a big sign saying, keep government's hands off my Medicare. And everybody said, oh, isn't that funny? She Doesn't she understand that is a federal government program? But in a sense, why should she know? Because anybody getting Medicare, anybody receiving Medicare benefits, for the most part, would never see a federal government employee. And so why would they think that it's a federal government employee? Because it's, it's not visible to anybody doing it. In fact, there, there are only about 5,000 people who manage Medicare and Medicaid and children's health insurance. 25% of the entire federal budget is managed by just 0.2% of all federal employees. And so that's deep in its structural. So it makes it all the easier just to, to treat the federal bureaucracy and federal employees is a kind of hockey puck slapped around in all these deep, harsh politicization battles. And it's all the product of some very deep structural problems that we've gradually gotten ourselves into and which make the federal government increasingly hard to manage. And with that, we're going to take a uh, quick break, our, our last one, and we'll be back to continue the discussion. Uh, this is Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. And uh, we've got a few more minutes here before we wrap up. Uh, we're talking to uh, Dr. Paul Light and Dr. Uh, Donald Kettle, um, who have done uh, extensive research into to governance and are prolific authors uh, uh, on the subject of, of good government and, and what that means. And uh, I wanted to give you guys uh, an opportunity here uh, just in our last segment. Um, you both so prolific in, in, in churning out books and research. Uh, Dr. Kettle, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, you know, is there anything going on right now that the the average listener who's not in academia and, and covering this uh, all the time may may miss that, uh, that that's that's going on, but is not getting the attention that perhaps uh, it deserves or or research that that you're working on that you wanted to uh, to talk about? One of the things I'm fascinated by is the the rise of data and especially big data and trying to sort through some of these kinds of questions. So if you ask yourself, how, how can we try to deal with all these layers and connecting all these pieces, and especially trying to find out what's going on out there, given the fact that people at the top are often so far away, there is a fascinating collection, fascinating new initiatives, and the use of data to try to solve some of those problems. Not only uh, as the, the federal government has done very effectively to make huge reductions in the number of homeless veterans, by getting good feedback on the way the programs are working and tweaking those programs to get homeless vets off the streets. Uh, 
that's a, a clear sign about the way in which data have helped the federal government operate much more effectively. But, but even more fundamentally, in trying to track things like food inspections, food safety, the, the ways in which uh, environmental quality is working in terms of violations of the, uh, the standards that have been set, the ways of being able to monitor environment out there in terms of smokestacks and the water quality so that instead of having inspectors going out and poking their noses and everything, we can use monitors to understand what's happening, figure out what the problems are, jump in and fix them without having to engage in the same kind of heavy-handed regulatory strategies. Just in general, the, the use of data and big data in particular is one of the great new emerging trends. That hasn't got much attention, but is likely to be the focus of a lot of important breakthroughs, I think, in the next five to ten years. And it's certainly timely in, in recent weeks. I uh, was, was fortunate enough to be a part of the uh, uh, recent data summit where they, they've actually uh, you know, released uh, the spending data, federal spending data for the first time in, in one format uh, for the first time in history. So certainly there, I think, have been some positive strides in that, but perhaps it goes back to uh, some of the, the lack of investment in uh, what's necessary to, uh, to perform good government. Absolutely. It's one of the things that Paul was using our technical term of stuff, but there's a lot of stuff going on out there that the data can help us get at and help us do something with in ways that are really fascinating. Yeah, I I, I agree with Don. I I think one of the big problems right now is that we don't do very much crowdsourcing uh, on the data. Um, There are calls from time to time. Uh, to uh, create greater transparency in government. Uh, the Obama administration made transparency a priority, but I think there was a great deal of disappointment about what actually happened. And, um, you know, we do have things like challenge.gov where you do have uh, crowdsourced um, development of ideas and challenges, prize philanthropy, if you will, uh, of a kind. But you know, you have to open up the data for deep inspection. And personally, I find it very difficult to navigate the federal data streams. Um, I understand the need uh, to protect proprietary information and to protect privacy, but it's often uh, nearly impossible to use the data sets that we have. Uh, I look at OPM and FedScope. I get it. Uh, It's a good set of data, but I find it very difficult uh, uh, to access sometimes. And, you know, we just have to work on that. Uh, Don's right. Big data may be the answer, or I think it is the answer, but who's going to do the mining and uh, who's going to do the deep data diving and do they have access to the data uh, that uh, we need to keep track of performance and monitor uh, the federal workforce broadly defined. And I have concerns about that. And I do not think that the Trump administration is going to get behind a big data movement, although, you know, that was the signaling when uh, Jared Kushner traveled to the agencies to talk about data. I don't know, Don, what do you think about that one? Do you, do you think that? Yeah, I, I think this is, a, this is a great missed opportunity that is in the process of setting itself up. Uh, Derek Kushner's Innovation Center is and an office is going to be focusing on the use of technology in government. And the, the biggest and easiest and lowest hanging fruit that there is out there is on improvements of the way in which the federal government can be 
manage better by better use of data. If we were going to try to learn the lessons from the private sector and run the government more like the best-run private companies, that's exactly what it is that they're doing. And there's an enormous opportunity there. And, and my fear is that they're missing it. It's, it's not as if there aren't people at high levels in the government paying very careful attention to that, especially in the Office of Management and Budget, the Performance Improvement Council, and other places like that. But it has not yet penetrated the West Wing yet. And it is, it's the, the easiest win that the administration has that it has not yet taken advantage of. And we've got about we've got about two minutes left before we have to wrap up. Uh, you know, Dr. Kettle, you mentioned uh, big data. Dr. Light, I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to jump in there. Um, if, if anything that's sort of going on that, that uh, piques your interest or that, that you're working on right now in, uh, in your research that you wanted to highlight? Well, I think we're all uh, responding uh, to what's happening in the Trump administration and the standard first-year uh, pay and hiring freeze. Um, you know, this one was a hiring freeze. Uh, I look back to 1940, there have been 27 hiring freezes uh, since that period, uh, none of which uh, really had much of an effect um, on actual federal employment. Uh, Don highlights this in some of his work. Um, but look, uh, we're, we're waiting to see what happens in September. Uh, uh, this kind of hidden effort to get at reorganization plans from the agencies that will be integrated into the FY18 budget um, uh, and the FY19 uh, uh, budget, uh, this is pretty significant, and we'll have to see what happens. You know, um, rarely is there a president who does not uh, support uh, reducing the size of government, but... We'll have to see exactly what these reorganization plans contain. I don't know, Don. You might have a, a view of it. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I think that's kind of a, um, that is an area that we have to pay close attention to. But I haven't heard much about it in the last uh, six to eight weeks or so. No, it's all out there. It's all below the radar right now. Agencies have gotten their their budget marks at least in a preliminary way for the upcoming fiscal year, they've been asked to put together big plans for reorganizing themselves, and the two are supposed to be linked. The question and, is, is reorganization going to be focused primarily on trying to find ways and, of, of improving the results, or is it going to be a stalking horse for a strategy to try to slash federal spending and make and people I'm, even I'm more... I'm sorry successful? to jump in here. That's uh, a critical issue. Sorry to jump in and interrupt the conversation, but we're up against a hard break. And uh, thank you to Dr. Paul Light and Dr. Donald Kettle for joining us today. I think that's all the time we have. And Fed Talks brought to you by uh, the federal employment law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Rolf. And thanks for joining us. And uh, have a good weekend. Com and 15-